You are listening to a podcast from The National. Another September, another UN General Assembly. The general debate of the UN's 72nd General Assembly has wrapped up. Fairy speeches, talk of nuclear war, and celebrity appearances made the headlines. But beyond the headlines, there were developments that impact lives all over the world, including millions in the Middle East. I'm Mina Alaravi, Editor-in-Chief of The National. In this week's Beyond the Headlines podcast, I have with me Damien McElroy, London Bureau Chief, and our correspondent in Washington, D.C., Joyce Karam. We're here to discuss three countries that received considerable attention during the high-level week at the U.N. All three currently have peace processes being mediated by the U.N. and in desperate need of peace and stability. They are Libya, Syria, and Yemen. We start with Libya where we had time to sit with the UN's newly appointed envoy, Rassan Salama, who presented his plan for Libya last week and got strong international support for it. This is what he had to say on the support that he received. The unanimous expression of support for what the UN plan is a unanimous expression of fear. Because everybody has come to the conclusion that the status quo is not tenable. Joyce, where does that fear stem from when it comes to Libya today? Well, I think looking at the last four years uh, and the conflict, the division, uh, the deeper division that we're seeing unfolding between the East and the West, the the fragmentation of uh, Libyan institutions, uh, the weakening of the central government, even the parliament is is split. I think all these reasons have uh, uh, have made us hear what we heard from Mr. Uh, Salemi at this uh, juncture, I think the Libyan crisis, if a political solution is not envisioned uh, soon, uh, we could be looking at uh, more dire scenarios, the the, the split between uh, East uh, and West, a a more atrocious fight over the resources, over the oil, uh, the the tribal components come into play. So I think this is... uh, what uh, what's on uh, Ghassan Salama's mind. Uh, this is uh, the fear that he's talking about, the same fear that's now urging the international community to come together and try to move the needle when it comes to a political solution. But also, if you talk to, for example, the Egyptian diplomats or others, they see some hope in the fact that Qatar's support to... Uh, destructive players in Libya or to its proxies in Libya has been less uh, in the last few months. Uh, That's why they see an opportunity here. Uh, There is a stronger regional push to to push for a political solution in in, in Libya. Damien, if I can turn to you about what Joyce was speaking about in terms of the split between East and West, but also the fact that the fear stems from ungoverned territories in Libya, where we, for a while, heard that there were ISIS contingents. Could we see that happening in Libya if there isn't a peaceful solution soon? I think we are already seeing that. I think in the south of Libya, there's even some reports that um, ISIS is back around Sirte again. Um, So there's very much a fear that, you know, lots of Libya can be, um, come a haven for ISIS or ISIL and the danger is 
not only that there's all these factions along the coast of Libya that are fighting out their own battles, but in those other parts of Libya, which is a huge country, there will be ISIL factions setting up or ISIL groups setting up and they'll be able to use that and they'll be able to use that in the kind of classic way that they then become a force to project uh, violence elsewhere. So it's very important, obviously, to have um, one single Libyan security entity, one single Libyan government, one single Libyan authority. It's also very important that that single entity, if you like, is actually asserting control over the whole territory of the country and making sure that ISIL don't come back. But having a single entity means that others lose out, and they can be those that will fight against any possible peace plan or deal. And, of course, Ghassan Salama is well aware of this. This is what he had to say on the issue of spoilers that may derail the path forward. I know of no peace process that didn't have its spoilers. And the Libyan peace process will have its spoilers. I could already identify some of them. Uh, I call it the status quo party. Mm. Those who, I mean, if the situation is like that, it means that there are some people who are taking advantage of the situation. It doesn't happen by immaculate conception. It, it, it happens because some people are defending yeah. uh, that status quo. So, Damien, like Ghassan um, Salam has said, there are these spoilers. He's expecting these spoilers um, to be about. What do you do when it's a peace process, whether it's the Libyans themselves or external parties? I mean, Joyce just referenced those that uh, Qatar supports. You know, there are different players in Libya today. How does somebody like the UN envoy coax them to be part of the process or eliminate their influence? Well, I think he's got two um, issues there. He's got the problem of from outside in and he's got the problem of within. So, first of all, Different European countries have been basically proceeding on different agendas here. And so it's very important to make sure that those European countries swing behind him. We've obviously got the problem on the agendas of various regional players as well to take into the mix. Now, the big development of the week was that everyone was saying he has a viable process, it is a good roadmap, and they do want to swing behind it. So if they follow through and they are genuine in that, then he's got a much better chance than any of his predecessors of um, actually pulling off a solution here. Within, you know, you've got very powerful factions and they have to be incentivized. And, and but frankly, any support they're getting from outside has to push them in, in the right direction. I mean, Ghassan Salama himself is no stranger uh, when it comes to peace uh, processes or when it comes to uh, mediation. This is uh, uh, this is someone who worked uh, uh, in Iraq, who worked uh, on the uh, on Lebanon's Taif agreement, and one of the things he said is he really doesn't want this to be another Lebanon model. He doesn't want to waste six years. Uh, just from the point where everybody knows what kind of agreement they want to reach and then waiting that much time to reach it. So I think uh, when we talk about Ghassan Salama, he's he's uh, uh, very good at building consensus. He knows wh- who to push and when, uh, how to bring Libyans uh, together. So I think this is 
this is a good opportunity for Libya as, as we're listening uh, to him and uh, his expertise, the backing he has from European countries, from the French uh, in particular, from, from the United States, and the, the changing regional dynamic could all play in, in his favor this time, and that actually Libya is not Syria. I mean, not yet at least. Well, that takes us on to the second country we wanted to discuss here, which is Syria. And perhaps similar to Libya, the elements that are present that could lead to a deal are known, but it's just having all the sides on the table come together and agree that that's the deal that they will agree to. During the UN General Assembly week, several meetings were held focused on Syria, including a high-level meeting of like-minded countries, that is, those countries who initially supported the uprising against the Syrian regime. Ministers of Canada, Denmark, Egypt, the European Union, France, Germany, Italy, Jordan, Netherlands, Norway, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, Turkey, and the UAE, alongside the UK and United States, met on September the 18th to discuss Syria. And they agreed on a number of points that were explained in a statement. The second point in that statement says... The recovery and reconstruction support for Syria hinges on a credible political process leading to a genuine political transition that can be supported by a majority of the Syrian people. Joyce, this basically emerged throughout the week as a process that both the EU and the UN greatly support, in addition to the countries that I just rolled off here. And they believe that reconstruction money can be used as economic leverage to get negotiations going. Does that sound like a good idea to you? It only sounds a good idea if you have the regime responding uh, on the ground. But I don't think when you look at the ground dynamics that we are at this uh, stage yet, the Americans are saying any reconstruction efforts have to happen in parallel to a political process that starts a transition in Syria uh, according to the Geneva principles. They keep saying Geneva and not Astana. Uh, So it's in theory, yes, reconstruction is is a very good incentive. It was also used, for example, in, in Lebanon in bringing people around uh, the Ta'if agreement and the massive reconstruction plan that we saw thereafter. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure if we are there yet in, in Syria. If you see the divisions uh, on the ground where the regime stands today, uh, we are not at a point of a major compromise to to end uh, the fighting. And what we're seeing more is the fragmentation on the ground, the escalation zones, uh, Nusra still in the north. Uh, so maybe this is the beginning of uh, a discussion about reconstruction, but it's going to be, I think, if we come back to this table next year, we might still be discussing this issue. Damien, Joyce talks about all the fragmentation and divisions within within Syria. And there was some talk here about this idea of a soft partition of Syria. We're seeing at the same time the Syrian Kurds held their own elections in the last few days, um, trying to have their own semi-autonomous region. So while senior officials might be talking about economic leverage and reconstruction, on the ground, Do you think that the players are actually thinking about that step of reconstruction? Are they still fighting a strong fight? I think there's a lot of fights still to be fought 
and that has to be your starting point. Um, what is going to happen with Idlib um, for a start? Um, there's a race in the south to establish control, and then there are all the regions that are variously self-governing in the north, the Kurdish and around northern Aleppo places as well. So in terms of reconstruction, there are some places that have local councils that will be getting assistance to resume basic services and things. So you're seeing little, if you like, pilot lights of um, reconstruction. But then at the sort of greater level where the big incentives kick in, I think you are seeing various plans emerge. I saw some talk during the week that the Russians were offering a Grozny-style rebuilding for Syria, which is um, essentially to take flattened cities and, and rebuild them you know, as big megaliths. Um, now, we we're, we're just think how far away we are really from that, even you know, if, the, if they were trying to do it in Aleppo or something. It's, it's, it's very, very hard to conceive. I think, as Josh said, you know, this time next year we can talk about this again, but there's going to be a lot of fighting in between now and then. I guess my my question to you, Damien, about that is that while there is a lot of fighting still to be had, as we mentioned in Libya, there are external forces that support that fighting, that there is money and there are guns that are coming from outside of Syria. So do you think those backing armed groups inside of Syria and those backing the regime still think that the military battle has to take precedence? Um, very much so. I can't see how you could say freeze your positions here and then try and sort out power sharing or a division of power at some national level. I don't think any side is at a point where they are willing to give the other side what what they might want in that in that sense and you know the regime will want to control a viable large space in Syria the um, opposition is still at a point where it, it needs to be better formed it needs to be more able to represent a vision of, of what sort of country it wants that would have reconciliation at its heart so uh, even at that political level no one has reached a level of maturity where they they will be able to contribute to what would be a workable plan. Joyce, the rep- one of the key representatives of the Syrian opposition, Riyal the Hijab, who was a former prime minister of Syria and is uh, now leader of the Higher Negotiations Committee for the Syrians, was here in New York, and he had some very senior meetings and with foreign ministers of. Saudi Arabia, Sweden, Denmark, others. And yet some people write off the political opposition in Syria and can only see armed groups. Does Riyadh Hijab or the political opposition in Syria still hold any weight? If we want to talk about Riyadh Hijab himself, I mean, he does represent a certain uh, a certain line, a certain current uh, in Syria. He himself is from uh, Derizur. Uh, he knows the, the inner works of the Syrian regime very well, having worked and having been a former official. I do think, however, that the split between the outside opposition and the internal opposition is is real. And I'm not confident of, uh, if hijab can actually you know, dictate to an-Nusra or Ahrar or others of 
what, what they should be adhering to or what kind of settlement he could agree to with, with others. Uh, what In his meetings, what we heard is the opposition was told by regional and by Western countries to get on board, to get on board with the settlement, to get on board with, uh, with the talks, sorry, not with the settlement, to, to just negotiate in full faith and basically let, let the regime be uh, the obstructionist here. Uh, so uh, they will try to do this, but, uh, I mean, this is a very depleted opposition as well. They don't have many courts. They've lost a lot on the ground since Russia uh, came in uh, two years ago. Uh, so in a sense, they're not in a good position right now. I think they will try to ride uh, this wave out and, uh, uh, and see what, uh, what comes out whether from uh, the Riyadh meeting coming up in, in October or in uh, the, the next one in Geneva. Speaking of obstructionists, there is another peace process that is stalling, and that is that of Yemen. There were hopes that the UN envoy Ismail Wildeshaykh Ahmed could bring different warring Yemenis to the negotiating table. However, the Houthis controlling Sana'a and their allies have failed to come to the negotiating table. Yemen's president, Abed Rabbu Mansour Hadi, was here in New York and delivered his country's address to the General Assembly. Damien, you followed that speech, and you've been following the meetings in New York on Yemen. What are the key issues regarding delivering humanitarian aid to Yemen? Because that's the most pressing challenge today. There's a logistical issue, which is essentially the main northern port is controlled by the Houthi. Um, There are several challenges, therefore, to delivering humanitarian relief. There's an international mechanism, an inspection mechanism, because obviously, you know, you don't want shipments going into that port that are essentially armed shipments. So the UN oversees shipments in. However, once they get permission, they um, don't always automatically land. In fact, a lot of them don't. And then even when they do land, there's cargo charges, there's looting, there's pillaging. So there's a great bottleneck. There's huge efforts going on to try and, um, uh, you know, improve processing there, but um, including the America has bought at large expense some docking cranes to do offloading, but the local port people won't accept them. So, you know, there's a standoff at that level. Uh, there's also problems related to, you know, people not having um, full payments, public servants. There's issues over Sana Airport and people who might want to be flown out of the country to get treatment elsewhere because obviously the hospitals aren't functioning very well within that big urban landmass. But overall, this is about politics and it's about whether there's any way that a reconciliation negotiation process can, um, you know, lift its eyes to the horizon and actually uh, start to talk about the real issues about restoring the legitimate government and to see if people can put aside the aggravation that they've had and actually start to try and cooperate and bring this conflict to an end and restore a functioning independent sovereign state. Joyce, I want to turn to you about Yemen and the dynamic 
that the Iranians bring into the Yemen conflict. Uh, Saudi Arabia and its allies in the coalition to support the Yemeni government and president say that Iran has been very difficult and is providing the Houthis with arms and finances in order to keep this war going. We spoke to the Bahraini foreign minister who saw that Iran's role is the key impediment to a peace process. How can Iran change this behavior if they see that they're at very little cost being able to keep uh, Saudi Arabia and the region uh, busy in a war and bringing great harm to Yemen but actually isn't on its border? Uh, No, exactly. There is no incentive for Iran to change uh, behavior now. So far, it has a very strong proxy in in Yemen with the Houthis. Uh, It's it's, uh, designing the the, the Houthis, the the approach in handling the Houthis very similar to to Hezbollah, whether it's training, whether it's religious messaging. Even the, the media operation for the Houthis, part of it is run and managed from uh, uh, from Beirut and Lebanon. Uh, so it's uh, so far Iran looks at this and uh, they say, wow, we now have a very good, powerful hand in Yemen. I think the question that should be asked is in reverse. How can we split the Houthis from uh, from Iran? Because they were not always an Iranian proxy. Uh, and here I think more pressure should, should, should come in. Uh, maybe uh, if, if political talks uh, resume, as Damien was saying, or if uh, you can create fissures between uh, Saleh and the Houthis, if you do all of that, then there is a chance at uh, bringing a breakthrough or a compromise. Uh, but so far, uh, I think Iran looks at this and they see a winning uh, scheme uh, for them, and Hezbollah has only increased its uh, its support and it's even some say its presence in Houthi areas uh, in Yemen since the war started. And lastly, we turn to the UN itself. Uh, this has been a successful general debate week for the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who started his position in January of this year. And he began the week by pushing for reform of the UN in order to strengthen it, in order to give it greater leverage in Libya, Yemen, Syria, around the world, where we need international governance and mediation to bring about the end of wars and to fulfill the UN's mandate to provide peace and stability and security around the world. So let's hear from Guterres in his statement on the 18th of September calling for reform. Excellencies, we need to reform our world, and I'm committing to reforming the United Nations. Together, we have embarked on a comprehensive reform effort to build a UN development system to support states in bettering people's lives, to reinforce our ability to safeguard people's peace, security, and human rights, and to embrace management practices that advance those goals instead of hindering them. Joyce, if I can turn to you, Um, Secretary General Guterres held this reform meeting with Donald Trump. Together, they agreed on a 10-point program that's supposed to bring about reforms. However, there was one key problem. There are over 65 members of 
the UN, that haven't signed up to this reform plan. Importantly, Russia and China, members of the Security Council. How much of an impediment is that to this reform process? That's definitely a, a big impediment. And I think it was a strategic decision by Russia and China to not attend the meeting. The message they're telling Donald Trump and Washington is the world changed and you cannot mandate your reforms or any other thing you want uh, at the UN without going uh, through us. Uh, but the, the, the new dynamic, too, that's emerging is Trump and Guterres actually coming along. Trump was very critical of the UN before before uh, assuming office, but now I think he and Guterres are at a point where they realize they really need each other. The U.S. needs the U.N. on North Korea, and the U.S. remains the biggest donor to the to the U.N., so Guterres needs him. We're seeing Guterres also establish a very close relationship with Nikki Haley. He went, the, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., he went, delivered a speech in uh, North Carolina, uh, where uh, Haley was governor. So, so in that sense, I think we're seeing a new coalition forming inside the U.N. with the U.S., closer to Guterres, pushing these reforms, but uh, without, you know, backing from Russia uh, and China for some of them, it's very hard to see how they would be uh, implemented because they're they're powerful in the Security Council and in other offices and divisions, departments at the United Nations. Damien, that's one of the ironies when we talk about reforming the UN, because the five member countries of the permanent member countries of the Security Council hold the veto vote and could actually obstruct any effort. So you're asking those with the greatest power to give away some of their power within this international body. What's in it for them? Why would they? I think with the UN, people often say that if something didn't exist, no one would invent it. But actually, the UN does enjoy the advantage the opposite way around, that if it didn't exist, someone would invent it. And that's always the undertow to discussions like this, I think, that this is an organisation that is filled with inefficiencies, it's filled with um, incompetence, it's filled with corruption, and um, there's always agendas that lead onto on tangents in every, um, in every discussion. The Guterres approach is doing some smart things. For example, the agenda on peacekeeping is fulfilling an obvious need, which is that if these crimes are uh, taking place, then there must be justice. And, you know, the UN pays countries to send peacekeepers, so it has actual tools to ensure that countries uh, do follow up on allegations such as rape. So he can he can make changes like that. There's some very good reforms coming down the line, I think, in the area of refugees and migration, which you heard about. The overall bigger issues where China and Russia are apparently dragging their feet are something that he knows will drag out. And I'm sure, having taken the job, he's prepared for, if you like, a series of battles rather than one big reformist push. I want to pick up on your point about peacekeepers because there's another principle, uh, more recent principle that the UN had adopted, which is the responsibility to protect. And yet we were here at the UN 
and heard about the plight of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, uh, you know, endless calls to stop some of the killing that's happening in South Sudan and so forth. Has the UN giving, given up on the principle of the responsibility to protect? I think it was always something that was very contentious. Um, obviously, there was a blaze of glory in the late 1990s for it. But you have to recognize that was born out of some very bad situations where it hadn't acted. And um, the impediments in those earlier cases, such as Rwanda, are always likely to exist in a world of sovereign states. So actually, yes, responsibility to protect has fallen out of fashion. I think people are more overwhelmed by the obstacles than they are adhering to the idealism. Joyce, I want to turn to you because Damien used that keyword, sovereign states. Uh, we heard the U.S. President Donald Trump speak about sovereignty, and it was a theme that was picked up by other leaders as they gave their speeches and also during their side meetings. There is a greater focus today on sovereignty, but we're also seeing a fragmentation. And as everybody was in the U.N. this week, there were conversations about what happens to a country like Iraq, where you have the Kurdistan region declaring laterally that it would have a referendum on seeking independence and claiming its own sovereignty. Is sovereignty going to be the new theme of how states try to rule and inside groups try to get their own independence? It truly sounds uh, like it if we were listening to all the speeches, but it seems that everybody uses sovereignty for their own, uh, with their own definition. Uh, Trump uh, uses it to, uh, to justify his approach uh, towards some authoritarian regimes. Others use it to warn the U.S. not in intervening in, in, in their affairs. What, what we're seeing uh, in Iraq, you know, brings the debate, the whole debate back to the principle of uh, self-determination, to, to the Woodrow Wilson school. Is, is what uh, the Kurds seek a legitimate uh, demand, or uh, is it a suicidal path? We, we, we're, I think we're living in very interesting times, and uh, the verdict is not out yet. So it's, it's been extremely exciting and uh, to watch all of this unfold as we are in New York and whether the debate on sovereignty or self-determinations or other aspects of uh, conflict resolution is, is changing, or you and reform, and it's, it's up to see where all of this takes. We'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Damien and Joyce, for joining me for this podcast and also for your coverage of the 72nd session of the UN General Assembly. Uh, for continued coverage on all these issues, uh, read The National at thenational.ae or follow us on The National UAE. You can subscribe to this and other podcasts from The National on iTunes and through Google Play. Thank you very much. <laughs>